So we're continuing in our journey uh, through the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to uh, open them up to Jonah chapter 1. Last week, we we spent uh, our time together, or two weeks ago rather, we spent our time together setting up the book of Jonah, introducing who the characters were, starting a little bit of the narrative. Uh, And so this week, we're going to continue on in chapter 1 and finish it out to the end of the chapter. So Jonah chapter 1, and what I want to do is just go over the three main points of last week's sermon uh, with you so that that you are refreshed. Um, Point number one is that God will often ask you to do things you do not want to do. And so in the case of Jonah, he asked Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital, capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were not nice people. In fact, they were quite horrible people. Uh, and they were wildly and viciously against the nation of Israel. Uh, And so God asked Jonah to go and prophesy to them, saying that they needed to repent and come to know God. And so Jonah decided he was not going to do that. So the first thing was that God will often ask you to do things you do not want to do. Our second point from last week is this. Uh, You can always find a boat sailing in the opposite direction. Um... If you are trying to follow the will of God, you will know that there will always be a boat going in the opposite direction if you want to find it. Uh, And it is our responsibility to make sure we're actually getting on the right boat. The third point from last week is that God may send a storm to grab your attention. Uh, Quite often the storms are horrible, and I pray for you that the storms, when they come, that you don't hop on the boat in the wrong direction, so you don't need the storm to get your attention. Uh, But know this, even when the storm comes, God is with you, just as he was with with Jonah. So those were our three big points that we looked at last week. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 7 is where we're going to start. Just one brief reminder as well, uh, which is going to be here on my next slide, is that uh, the name Jonah means dove, uh, and the, the dove is sometimes seen as foolishness and also represents the human soul, and that his last name was Ben Amittai, which means the son of faithfulness. So Jonah literally was the foolish son of faithfulness, and it contrasts the two hearts that we see here in the book of Jonah. You see the heart of Jonah, and you see the heart of God. Jonah's heart is filled with foolishness, but God's heart is filled with compassion. And as we're moving through the book of Jonah, I really want you to see that the the father's heart is filled with compassion, not just for Christians, not just for people who know and obey him. Uh, God's heart is filled with compassion for everyone, all right? And so as we're moving through this journey through the book of Jonah, I want you to see that. And so uh, in your Bibles, Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 7, if you don't know where Jonah is in your Bible, it's sandwiched between uh, Obadiah and Micah. It's a very short book, so you might miss it, but here is what the Lord's word says. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose accounts these evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and those lots fell on Jonah. Now, uh, if you don't know a lot about uh, the culture in which we're living here, uh, Jonah is living, uh, casting lots is actually not such a weird thing to do. In fact, Casting lots is one of the ways uh, in the Old Testament through some of the books of the law, casting lots were some of the ways that the priest figured out what God wanted them to do. 
this is the logic behind it. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He controls everything. So if I cast lots, the result of those lots can be influenced by the all-powerful God so I know that I'm following God's will. Does that make sense? And so in the book of Leviticus, there's a bit where the high priest has two rocks inside. He had a little pocket on the inside of his robe, kind of looked like Napoleon, stuck his hand inside his tunic. Uh, And he had two rocks. One meant yes, one meant no. And if they couldn't figure out what the will of God was, it was the high priest's job to stick his hand into the robe, grab one of the rocks, mix them up, and pick one. And whichever rock came out, that's what they were going to do. I can't make this stuff up. It's ridiculous to us. But in their day, what they saw was that that was a way of following the will of God. And it wasn't just in Hebrew culture. It actually spilled over into many cultures. And so here, you've got people who don't know God, who are pagans, who have different gods that they pray to. We read that last week, that they gave offerings and prayers to other gods to figure out what was going on. And so when those gods failed them, they decided that they were going to cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 verses 8 through 9 continues with this. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us and what is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? This is the, the, the full, tell us your name, your age, where you're from, what you do for a living, why is this happening? What is it about your life that is causing this to happen to us because the lot fell upon you? And he said to them, Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord of God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so he gives a a, a very clear answer here of of who he is. Um, And this is what you need to know that the men on the boats had done everything according to their own religions to help the problems. When non-Christians, people who don't believe in God, people who do not follow Jesus Christ, get problems in their life, they do everything in their own power to try and fix the problem. And then when they can't fix the problem, usually they turn to prayer. Uh, There's a, a famous comedian on late night television who is a proclaimed atheist. He often mocks Christians. And interestingly enough, in his opening monologue, he used the phrase, I pray to God that this is wrong. He was talking about something that was happening in the political realm, but he used the phrase, I pray to God that this is wrong. And what you'll find is that even people who don't believe in God, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the, the end of everything, in the, uh, Marjorie read it for us earlier, and I love the word, tempestuous storm. The word tempestuous, and we'll come to it a little bit later on because I love it, and I think we need to bring that word back into society because it is fun to say, but tempestuous means to push and to pull violently. Have you ever had those situations in your life where you feel like you are being pushed and pulled violently? And the result of that pushing and pulling is that you fall on your knees in front of God and you start to pray. The people on the boat The men on the boat had done everything according to their own religions to help with the problems, and when it couldn't help, they turned to God. We continue on reading here uh, in Jonah's answer that Jonah then sets himself up as the prophet of God. He is, he, 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 
falls in on the answer. And I, and I want you to understand why this is so important. This is so important because in a few verses earlier, we had seen that Jonah was fleeing to Tarshish, which is a word I don't actually know how to pronounce. I'm assuming I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it sounds a little weird when you try and say it. Tarshish. In fact, it's so important that that's where Jonah's going that the scripture tells us three times that he's going down to a boat to go to Tarshish. He got on the boat to Tarshish and then the boat decided to go to Tarshish. They're really trying to draw it out in this story that Jonah is fleeing from the will of God. He is going in the opposite direction as fast and as far as he physically can from the Assyrian Empire. He's leaving. He's out. He's, he's done. And that's really, really important for us because in this verse, Jonah then comes up and says, I'm the prophet of the Lord. And this is a, a, an understanding in Jonah's mind. Suddenly he realizes in his own mind what his role in this story is. Now, I'm not saying that Jonah then knew that they were going to throw him overboard, that he was going to be swallowed by a big fish, that he was going to be in that fish for three days, three nights, and then get vomited up on the shore. I don't know how much Jonah knew being a prophet, but what I know is that at this moment when Jonah says, I am a prophet of the Lord, it is that moment in which Jonah surrenders his life to God. That is the moment, if you were picking through this story and you want to know what the change was, it was Jonah in this moment knowing that he was causing the storm, he was endangering these people's lives, and he was setting himself opposed to the will of God. The will of God that had been revealed to him. If you read chapter 1, verse 1, it will say, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the same word that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. It is the proclamation of the will of God. And Jonah in this instant knew that he had set his will against the almighty will of heaven. And he says, I'm a prophet of the Lord. And this is happening on my account. Verse 10 continues. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. They were exceedingly afraid. Now, our congregation here, a majority of you guys are women. There's something that you need to know about men, if you don't know it already. It takes a lot for a man to say, I am exceedingly afraid. Because men are stubborn, and we don't like to admit that we don't have control over a situation. If that's news to any of you, I'd be surprised. But that's what men are like. Can you imagine the fear in these people's lives right now? Like, I don't want you to imagine this is just a story that you read through Scripture, and then in a couple of weeks we'll be done, we're moving on to another chapter of the Bible. I want you to imagine this person's life, these people on this boat, in this situation. We read last week that they threw their cargo overboard to try and lighten the, the weight of the ship so it wouldn't be dragged down under the water, that they wouldn't be sunk. They were throwing their livelihoods overboard. These were real people with real lives, and they said that they were exceedingly afraid. And then they said to Jonah, what is it that you have done? And then they said to him, what shall we do to you 
that the sea may quiet down for all of us. Remember that these are not followers of God, that they didn't know God, they weren't Hebrew, they weren't part, they weren't uh, part of the Hebrew religion, they were pagans, they worshipped other gods, and in this moment they said to Jonah, what can we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So it was tempestuous before, and now it's growing more and more tempestuous. I really like that word. I'm sorry. It's a fun word. More and more. At this point, I don't have an illustration to explain exactly how this boat was rocking. The closest thing I can get to is a a few weeks ago during winter, I needed to go out to to Camp Lummi on the island, and I got onto the ferry. And you know, you drive your car onto the ferry, um, and it was already rocking back and forth in the dock. It hadn't actually left yet, uh, and it was rocking back and forth so much that they didn't even fully load the dock. There was uh, four or five cars, like uh, one, two, three, four, five, six cars, instead of the normal 12 or, or 18 cars that they load on. So it was already a lighter ship that we were on, and at that point, I was praying like I have never prayed before. Um, to put this into context, and this is between you and me, we don't tell Nikki this, this I prayed more than I prayed before my wedding. Like, to put this into perspective, I was like, all right, if this boat goes down, what do I do? How do I get out of the car? Do I keep my window down? Do I try? What do I do to get? And, and we started moving out of the, the dock, and the, the boat just started listing. And we got to like 45 degree angles, and I was like, Jesus, does this count as martyrdom? Because if I wasn't in the Salvation Army and I wasn't following you, I wouldn't have to go to Camp Lummy. I wouldn't be in this situation, so am I technically a martyr if I die? And then I was thinking to myself, if I hit my head really hard against the board, I could knock myself out so I wouldn't feel myself drowning. Like, I was planning stuff here. Like, I was texting Nikki, like, I love you. Like, remember me, get cats, don't remarry. Like, it was bad. And then the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And it started rocking back and forth. And now... To put this in perspective, it is a five-minute ferry ride. <laughs> and I've prayed more in that five minutes than I think the rest of my life combined. For these guys who were hardened sailors, this is what they did. The guys on that ferry who have the little life vests, uh, little reflective jackets, they weren't afraid. I was afraid. I was terrified. But they as the boat was rocking back and forth like this, they were still walking around with the little coupon clipper to to take money. And I'm like, you're going to be washed overboard. Get inside. Do this when we're docked. But they didn't. They knew knew the, the waves. They knew the sea that they were on. They knew exactly how far the boat could rock before we all just went into the water. They knew that stuff because it was their jobs. It was their livelihoods. It was their careers. These guys knew the waters in which they sailed, they knew the ships that they were on, they knew the waters, and yet still they were more and more afraid, and then the seas grew more and more tempestuous. I don't want to know how bad it was for these guys. What will will you do that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous? 
And here's what's really interesting about this. Uh, these guys didn't know who God was. We've established this. And yet they wanted to obey whatever the prophet of God said to them. That they, somewhere inside them, knew that this prophet of God was speaking the truth. That he was speaking the truth with power and that they wanted to do whatever it is that, they t that he told them to do because they knew that that was going to save their lives. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, that, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Hurl me into the sea. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They said, look, Jonah, we believe that you are a prophet of God, that God's the one controlling this. What do we need to do in order to save our lives? And Jonah said, throw me overboard. And here's what's really interesting that I, I, I find in this. Uh, other than the word tempestuous, which I think is the next slide, just because I really love this word. It's uh, up there somewhere. But These sailors had a basic regard for human life. Even though they, they weren't of the Hebrew religion, they still had a regard for Jonah's life. To the point where uh, Jonah, that they acknowledged was the prophet of the Lord and that he needed to do what Jonah told them to do, Jonah says, throw me overboard. They're like, nah, I think we can row against this. We're going to, we're going to start rowing back to the shore. Uh, I don't know how far they're out. When you look at this particular journey, it's 2,500 miles. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how far along on this journey they were. Uh, they were. Um, but this particular journey, they decided, you know what, rather than killing him and rather than saving our own lives, we're going to put the oars in the water and we're going to start rowing back to the shore, um, which to me is quite interesting simply because how much effort is that? Like, let's, let's be honest, uh, a real honest, a real human moment here. That is a lot of effort from, in a culture that doesn't acknowledge the sanctity of human life, because that was not a concept that was around in other world religions at this time. So rather than throwing this guy overboard, they would still risk their own lives rather than kill another human. And, and when studying this, um, I don't want to, to give away my end points, but I want you to understand that they had a truth and knowledge about the sanctity of human life that was inherent to themselves given by God, but inherent to them that they didn't get from anywhere else. And we'll, we'll get to there in a little bit as we, we read on here in verses 15. It says this, So they picked up Jonah, sorry, uh, verse 14, I should, start, I should finish this. Uh, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay, us, uh, lay not us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. And so what they did is they, they said, Jonah, what's going, what do we need to do? You need to throw me into the water. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep rowing. And after a while, they figured out that it wasn't helping. So they said to, they cried out to the Lord. This is, again, not a God that they have a relationship with, not a God that they know, not a God who they know how to worship properly. But they called out to, to, to God 
uh, Lord, have mercy on us. Let us not be found guilty of this man's life. Let us, us be found innocent in your sight. And so you've got these guys who don't know God calling out to God in a very real way. And so then we move to verse 15. It says this, that they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the, me, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And I, I have a little bit of a concept here that I might get a little bit of pushback from. That's okay, but I want you to see it through to the end. People who don't know God can still obey God. Um, a, a, obedience to God is not exclusively a Christian thing. There are people who uh, do good things because they feel like they, they need to in order to make this world a better place. And they're not necessarily Christians and they don't necessarily know God, but they're still obeying some of the commands of God even though they don't know him. Does that make sense? And so here you've got a bunch of sailors. They don't know God. They don't know what he's like. They don't know his character or his nature. They don't know how to worship him properly. But what they say is, I'm still going to obey the Lord. And so this group of men, even though, uh, even though they did not believe in God, they obeyed God. And that leads me to a point. In fact, if we move a couple of slides ahead. Uh, here we go. Truth is absolute. When something is true, it's true for everybody. I want you to, to understand this concept that truth is not this relative thing. In, in our society, uh, we, we often hear people say things like, well, that's true for me. Uh, it's not necessarily true for you. And, and they've got this relationship with the truth that makes it uh, uh, relative. And I, I really don't understand that as a concept because even the concept of saying uh, truth is relative, if truth was relative, that would make that a, a relative statement, meaning it's not always true, which gets confusing when you try and wrap your, mount, wrap your mind around it. Um, for me, truth is absolute whether you believe it or not. If I say there is such a thing as gravity and I decide to step off the edge of a ledge or off the set, uh, side of the building, what's going to happen to me? Going to fall. Carol agreed with me from the back, so I know I'm on the right track. If I say there's no such thing as gravity and I walk up to that same ledge and I take a step off, what's going to happen? Am I going to float because truth is relative? No, I'm going to fall because truth, something that is true, is true for everybody. So these sailors who did not know who God was still obeyed God and so uh, they, they knew in their hearts that there were certain truths in this world like the sanctity of lives. And, and so this particular section of scripture is really interesting for me, not for Jonah because I know it's the big, big idea of Jonah. He gets swallowed by a fish. We all want to know how that happens. So we focus on that part of the story. But these sailors... Man, I want to have a cup of coffee with these sailors. Like, I want to figure out what they were thinking in these moments. This is, again, a gut-wrenching moment for them. The boat was rocking at angles that would make you green. And they were, were terrified for their lives. They were throwing their livelihoods overboard. They were casting lots. They were praying to anything that moved. Uh, have you ever seen the, the movie The Mummy? 
with Brendan Fraser, not the new one, we don't talk about that, we're talking about the one with Brendan Fraser, released in 1999. There's a scene in that particular movie where a guy comes up against the money, mummy and he pulls up uh, a Christian psalm, a uh, Christian cross, and he starts praying the Lord's Prayer, and that doesn't work, so he pulls out an a, a, a Arabic charm, and he speaks, starts speaking in Arabic and, and does an Arabic prayer, and that doesn't work, so he pulls out a Buddhist charm, and he starts chanting a Buddhist prayer, and that doesn't work, and then he picks up the Hebrew Star of David and starts chanting in Hebrew, and that works because the mummy's from Egypt, so he recognized the Hebrew language. This is what the, these guys were doing. They were praying to anything that moved or anything that didn't move. And at that point, they came to know an eternal truth that the God of the universe created everything, was in control of everything, and if they obeyed the word of the Lord, they would be okay. If they obeyed the word and the will of God, that they would be spared. That's a conversion moment. It may be not be a conversion moment that you and I recognize or that we think about. Uh, you know, it's not someone coming to uh, a holiness altar or a mercy seat and start, you know, dear Lord, I am a sinner. Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. But I'm not saying sinners pray. But there is a conversion moment here when these people in their sinfulness realize that if they obey the word of the Lord, they will be saved. And this is brilliant for us because it means that God has already prepared the way for people in our lives who don't know Him to receive the Word of the Lord. And so what's really important for you and for me is that there are people out there that God has put into our lives, in our communities, in our friendship circles, in our work circles, in our family circles, that God is preparing the way in their hearts to hear the word of the Lord. And I pray for you that it's not as bad as a rocking boat where you're going to be thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish, but maybe, just maybe, you're the reluctant prophet. Maybe you are the Jonah to those people that you need to go and you need to witness to God, for God to these people. None of that was in my notes. So let's figure out where we are and jump ahead. Here we go. People, people who do not believe in God can still access the truth. And perhaps, just perhaps, we should build an evangelistic argument on common hell truths building up to an ultimate truth. Uh, too often, evangelism starts with a person who knows nothing about Christianity, nothing about the Bible, doesn't believe in God in any way, shape, or form, and we start our evangelism by saying, you need to believe in God. And we have no basis for them in their own rational hearts. Maybe we should start with a commonality, a common-held set of beliefs. You believe in the sanctity of life. I believe in the sanctity of life. Let me tell you where my belief comes from. You believe in doing good and helping people. I believe in doing good and helping people. Let me tell you where that belief comes from. That maybe, just maybe, evangelism would look slightly different and in our world today would be slightly more effective if instead of trying to hit people over the head with the Bible, and now hear me when I say that I believe that the Bible is the word of God, it is inspired, it is true. Uh, I believe that it is the basis for everything that we do and everything that we believe. We've gone through a doctrine series. You know what I think about the Bible. It is everything to me. But maybe, just maybe, if people don't believe that the Bible is true, quoting out of the Bible is not the way to get them saved. Maybe the way of getting across to the generations that we find ourselves in today is sidling up to someone, having a relationship with that person and saying, we believe in common truths. Let's start there with common ground and let me tell you where my beliefs come from. Uh, 
I don't know. I'm not trying to like completely revamp evangelism here, but like maybe there's something we can be doing differently. Maybe there's something from the story of Jonah of these guys. I don't know how even how many of these guys. I want to think like there's five guys in the, this boat. Like that's what I want to think. I don't know how many people are here. I don't know how many men are in this boat with him. But they heard the word of the Lord and they responded. And then at the end of this, it says that they made vows. They made vows to the Lord. So they have their conversion experience and then realize that the God of the universe saved them and then each one of them made a vow saying, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to like yank my charms away and I'm just going to pray to you in the future. It wasn't complicated for them. It wasn't a big church service. It wasn't a huge evangelistic outreach where they had a brass band and people beating on drums and, and people waving flags. It was a boat that was about to sink and they made vows to God at the end of it. They had their conversion experience. They realized that the word of God was absolute and that following him was the only way to salvation. They needed to follow God to be saved and then they made vows to God. God, I'm going to follow you. God, I'm going to listen to you. God, we're going to do what you tell us to do. And in the end here, verse 17, it ended with saying, then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights and we'll, we'll deal with that next week. But I want to end with uh, these three points. And this is where we're going to end our time together. Uh, being afraid is okay. Now, I... I want to mirror this with the some 360-odd Bible verses that say things like, do not be afraid, do not fear, uh, trust in the Lord with all your understanding. Those are true, but it is okay to be afraid in certain situations. It's okay to have a fear in your belly. What's important is that when you have that fear, dealing with it in the correct way. Being afraid is okay. Uh, if you read the Psalms, the book of Psalms is fascinating uh, for a study of the mind and heart of David who wrote about half of the Psalms because you read one page and it will be like, Lord, uh, I cannot flee from your presence. You're all around me. Everywhere I go, you're there. It's great. It's wonderful. Everything's happy and great. And then you, you read the next page and it says, Lord, you are so far from my soul. Uh, I don't feel your presence. I, and and David has this like bipolar thing happening in the Psalms. It's really quite interesting to, to read. But in many of those Psalms, he cries out to God when he doesn't know what's going on, when he's afraid, when he doesn't know what's happening, uh, when he feels like he's not in communion with God anymore. He calls out to God. So these things, being afraid is okay, but how you respond to fear is what measures whether or not you are living according to God's will. Is because God then comes to him in those moments and says, yes, you're afraid, but trust in me. So he doesn't say, don't be afraid. He says, trust in me. Trust in me. And so, number one, it's okay being afraid. Number two, when someone is sent from God, listen. Um, this one is a little tricky as well, because it begs the question, how do you know someone's sent from God? Well, basically, a really proper uh, measure of this is whether or not what they're saying to you stacks up according to Scripture. If they're going away from Scripture, if they're contradicting Scripture, they're not sent from God because no one sent from God will contradict Scripture. 
But when someone is sent from God, listen. It's the old story of the guy who is hanging off a cliff and he prays that God is going to save him. And so a person comes along and says, here, let me pull you up. And he says, no, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And the second person walks along and says, no, no, really, let me pull you up. And he says, no, 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 I'm waiting for God to save me. And then a third person comes like, dude, you've been hanging off the edge of this cliff for the last six hours. You're going to fall. Let me pull you up. And he says, no, 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 I'm the American Ninja Warrior champion and I'm waiting for God to save me. And then he falls and he dies and he goes to heaven and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, well, why did you ignore the three people that I sent? When someone is sent from God, listen, it might be a harsh word that you need to listen to. It might be a loving word that you need to listen to. You don't get to cherry pick which one. Because sometimes God needs to get your attention and sometimes that attention is a tempestuous storm. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a lovely boat ride like Jesus when he was asleep in the, in the bow of the boat. That didn't last long. Number three, lead with truth. When you go from this place, as we will in the next couple of minutes, I know I've kept you over time, I apologize for that, but I was ranting and whatever. When you go from this place and God calls you to evangelize, as I believe every single one of you will be called at one point in your life in the near future to evangelize to someone who doesn't know Jesus, lead with the truth. Lead with common truth, but never back down from the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is found in the words of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a, if you want to think of it this way, it's a nice step-by-step. Step. I am the way. You go with Jesus. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. In our day of rationality and being tolerant of all other world religions, beliefs, perspectives, and views, we often say that we're not allowed to say that anymore because it's being uh, phobic of, of someone else's lifestyle. Lead with the truth that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Start with common truths, but figure out the that common truths lead to ultimate truth. The Bible says that all truth comes from God. That if something is true, it is of God. Lead with that. Go with that. Build relationships. But lead, for heaven's sake, lead with the truth. We're ending our time today. I'd like to just pray for us. But I, I honestly, I beg you to, to do these things, to lead with the truth to go with what God has placed in front of you. I know I say it often, but I believe fully that there is a path in front of every single Christian that God has placed you on, that it is going to be your responsibility to share the truth about Jesus Christ with someone in your life. I don't believe that God puts people into your life for no reason. I, I believe that there is a purpose when God sets you on a path. You might not believe that, believe that but that's okay. I believe it which means that's what I'm going to preach. And you have to listen to me. I beg of you to lead with the truth, to build those relationships. I don't care if it's the barista that you see at Woods Coffee or Starbucks. I don't care if it's the Sunday school teachers here at church. I don't care if it is uh, the kindergarten teachers that your kids go to school or your bosses or your people that you work with or the people that you work uh, over, the, over. I don't care who it is. I don't know and I don't care, but what I want you to do is always lead with truth. 
God has put these people in your lives so that they are not condemned to hell. We should take that seriously and we should lead with truth.